Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. This episode is the first in a series about how raw fiber is transformed into what we wear and use. Infrastructure might not be the most warm and fuzzy part of a fiber system, but it's the key to creating soil-to-soil economies. I'm Jess Daniels, and today I'm sharing a conversation with Ben Hostetler from Mountain Meadow Wool Mill in Buffalo, Wyoming. I wanted to connect with Ben to follow up on a conversation that we first started back in 2016 when I began researching U.S. fiber processing for Fibershed's National Mill Inventory Project. We heard a little bit from Stephanie Wilkes in episode one about all the people and places that help get us dressed through transforming and working with fiber, but we've actually haven't had a lot of milling opportunities here in our home geography of Northern California. What we do have is a lot of fiber, about 3 million pounds produced per year in California. And that's just of wool, not to mention fine fibers like alpaca and mohair, or fibers like cotton, or you know now there's a lot of excitement around hemp. So Fibershed created a feasibility study for a nearly closed loop manufacturing system that would go all the way from farm to fashion, but it would cost about $26 million. That was back in 2014, and without access to that kind of investment capital, and at the time, with so few mills in the region, we began researching textile manufacturing across the U.S. The National Mill Inventory is now online, and it includes an explorer tool that can help connect you to milling infrastructure in your region. In our Northern California community, we're now really fortunate to have two wool mills that have opened just in the last two years. Mendocino Wool and Fiber Mill and Valley Oak Wool Mill. And both of these mills are now serving farmers in the region by creating roving and yarns that are breed and even flock specific. So the reason why I wanted to connect with Ben to open our conversation about infrastructure is that mill size and scale fall across a gradient. And because Mountain Meadow Wool Mill is a mid-sized mill, they have a unique perspective on the state of fiber processing services here in the U.S. We walk through the phases of fiber processing from raw fiber to finished yarn, and we also talk about how the size of a mill affects its capabilities and what type of customers it can serve. Understanding these dynamics of scale and capacity is really foundational to envisioning a regional fiber system where we can source, process, and wear fiber all within one geography. And we also talk about how the United States textile industry is in a somewhat precarious position yet it's needed more than ever to meet the growing desire for transparent and ethical supply chains. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome, Jess. At Mountain Meadow Wool Mill, you're a full-service fiber processor. Can you walk us through the steps of processing? Do you start with raw wool, and what are the phases to get to the end products you create? Sure. Um, As you jump into the process, there's the scale of textile processing in the U.S. There's a lot of different stages and and beginning stages and finishing stages of the textile industry. You've got your large commercial industry that remains in the U.S., kind of a a bare bones structure of what used to exist in the United States. The majority of textiles have shut down, gone overseas for production, and a lot of that occurred kind of in your mid-90s. And so you've got your large commercial processors that separate out 
raw wool processing through comb top. So you have your big scouring operations, and there's two of them that currently exist in the in the U.S. on, on your commercial scale. You've got Bowman Industries in in Texas, and they do a lot of your your coarser wools. Will go through the Bowman plant to feed your woolen industry, and then your worsted industry is often fed through Chargier's wool scouring in South Carolina. Um, and those two, on the scale in which they operate, they're going to wash more raw wool in one shift of a day than we do an entire year. So your scale is pretty drastically different in the scale of the large commercial industry that remains in the U.S. versus our small regional processing. And, and we'd call ourselves a regional processor as opposed to a mini mill processor. And I'll kind of explain that difference here in a second. But just kind of, you know, your, your large commercial industry, they do that raw fiber through comb top would be often the processing stage at the pre-processors. And then there's about five to seven big spinning mills that take that pre-processed top and spin it into yarn. Here at a regional mill, we're going to go all the way from raw wool all the way to finished yarn in the one facility. Hopefully by March, we'll have knitting operation going as well. So we'll do raw wool all the way to knitted product here in-house. So a lot smaller scale, um, a lot more customization we can do on that small scale in, in, in a regional capacity. Thank you. Yeah. You mentioned a couple things there, some a little bit of terminology that I'd love to unpack from the raw wool and the scouring, and then all the way through to the comb top. What do some of those terms mean, and what happens to the fiber at those steps? Sure, I'll just kind of walk you through that process. So when fiber comes in, it comes in in two forms. We're going to work with commercial operations that bring raw wool in large sacks. They'll be compressed wool sacks, nylon sacks. They're going to be about 400 to 500 pounds in a compressed sack. And we also do a lot of small custom production for either hobby producers or small ranches around the country. And it's going to come in plastic garbage bags or cardboard boxes, various states in which it comes in in the raw fiber. The raw fiber that comes in, it's just been shorn from those sheep. And so they've shorn that fiber. They bring it in for production. That raw wool has got a lot of grease on it. Uh, lanolin would be what a lot of people think of the, the product that's made with that grease. But when it comes in on the fiber, it's just a, a raw wool grease. There's a lot of dirt in it, a lot of impurities. There's going to be manure. There's going to be what we call bellies and tags. So on a fiber, on a fleece, on an animal, you've got wool that sits around the belly and it's laying in the dirt a lot and have more manure stains on it. You've got rich wool. You've got different qualities of wool on that one fleece. And so we, it comes in all together in a big bag. The first thing we're going to do is going to sort out those different qualities. We're going to get the finer wool taken out. We're going to remove some of that belly wool, some of the manure, dirt and grease um, gets taken out in that point as well. All that raw fiber we then go through various stages of production to make it into a finished product. And, and the first thing we're going to do is opening. So opening, especially with those compressed bales. Those compressed bales, they may be in there for almost a year before we use that fiber. So we need to open that, that fiber up. It loosens those fibers so we can get the dirt extracted a little more easily. So that would be the opening stage. And usually it's just big drums with little spikes on them. And there's various stages or, or styles of it, but a big drum with little spikes that fluffs up that fiber prior to scouring. Scouring done, is done at a regional mill like us or even your large conventional mills. You typically have five to six washbowls, and each washbowl is going to have a different function. And so in a, in a five-bowl system, the first bowl is going to be what we call a suet bowl. The suet bowl is going to be a lower temperature. Uh, it's going to be 80 to 100 degrees, usually about 90 degrees is what we target at here at the mill. And that lower temperature suet bowl, we're trying to get a lot of that dirt off that fiber prior to subsequent you know, that fiber. So we get that dirt out and it, it's mainly to treat it differently. We treat the different stages of wastewater differently. And so we want to extract that dirt matter first and then extract the grease later. The swim bowl also gets a lot of your salts. So sheep are sweating. You have potassium salts and other salts that are building up on that fiber. And your swim bowl removes that as well. Historically, the swim bowl is often used to make soap. So 
a lot of your historic soap production um, use the suant. It actually has some scouring properties in it, so you can actually make a soap with the suant. The next two bowls that goes through are going to be um, your high temperature wash bowls. And so in those high temperature bowls, a detergent is added of some kind. We use a biodegradable detergent here at the mill. That detergent is going to encapsulate the grease on those little fibers. So it's going to encapsulate that grease, and it goes through a couple squeeze presses to squeeze the grease off the fiber. Very similar to washing a dirty potter pan in your sink at home. So if you have a dirty potter pan in your sink, you're going to put some Dawn detergent in the sink, and that detergent's going to encapsulate the grease on the pan, and your hand with a wash rig is going to provide the force to remove that grease off of the surface. In the bowls, a very similar concept is, is taking place. We're encapsulating the grease on the fiber, and we use a squeeze press to squeeze that grease off the fiber, just like your hands would. Goes through two rinse bowls. Um, they're also going to be pretty high temperature. Um, we try not to shock the fiber, so we don't want to do a lot of extremes between hot and cold. So the rinse bowls are a little lower temperature than the, than the scouring bowls, but still hot enough that we're not going to be shocking that with cold water in the rinse cycle. Then it goes into a dryer. So after that, we've got nice, clean, crisp white wool. Um, wool is, is an awesome fiber in the fact that there's lots of different properties. So some wool can be a little yellower, um, just in its natural state. Some is going to be a little more of a crisp white. And we also do a lot of natural colors. So we're going to do black wool and gray wool and brown wool and various different colors in, in that scale. And the result there after drying is clean fiber. The grease has been removed. And so we're going to remove all that grease. The dirt's going to be removed. What's re remaining is going to be a little flex of vegetation. And some of that falls out during opening and in scouring. But vegetation, if you, if you think about uh, putting a blanket in a park, they throw down a, a blanket in the park. You lift it up and you've got little shreds of grass are stuck into the fibers of the blanket. And you've got to beat that blanket out to get that grass out of there. In the scouring operation or in the processing operation in general, all those little flecks of vegetation, so whether it's seeds or stalks of grass, they get stuck in that wool fiber. And so we have to either mechanically remove them in a worsted process or we're going to leave it in there for more of a rustic look. And so that's going to be the next stage in there. So we're going to go, we're going to take that clean fiber and run it over to the carding operation. Carding is, is large drums with little fine wires on it. So there's either fillet wires or a couple of different style, styles of wires you can use. Those little wires are working the fiber. So we run that clean fiber through there and those little wires are, are pulling it apart and creating this nice big web. This big web of fibers comes out. Once it exits the card, there's no rhyme or reason of why those fibers are oriented. Some partial orientation can start to occur, but for the most part, those fibers are running perpendicular to each other and horizontal and in all different directions and creating this big web. At this point in the process, there's a couple different styles of carding, but this is where it really differentiates between a woolen process and a worsted process. So in a, a woolen process, you've often, people have probably heard of Pendleton Woolen Mill or Farabault Woolen Mill, uh, Harrisville Woolen Mill. Usually when a mill uses woolen in its term, they're uh, do a woolen process and, and they come straight from a carding machine and they go straight to a spinner. So all those fibers are still kind of disorganized but in that web and you go straight to a spinning frame. There's some advantage to a, advantages to a woolen process. You can have a little loftier yarn. So it's great for blankets, great for outer sweaters, something where you want to remain, retain a lot of that loft. Also in a woolen process, you don't need the really long fibers. So the fibers are all intertwined. And so you can deal with fibers that are less than three inches long. So two, two and a half inch long fibers in a woolen process are, are fine to run through the operation. In a worsted mill, and that's the mill that we have here at Mountain Meadow Wool, um, we're going to align those fibers and make them all parallel. So we run it through a gilling operation, also called pin drafting. And it basically functions just like if you had a kind of a, a knot in your hair, you run a comb through your hair. We're going to run rows and rows of little pins through that fiber 
and it's going to align those fibers and make them parallel. So it's that parallelization process. It's going to create a smoother yarn. And usually when people hear the word worsted, they're going to think of a, a worsted wool suit. The worsted wool suits are done on the worsted style production. Most of your performance sock industry is done on the worsted style production. It creates a finer yarn, a smoother yarn in the worsted style production. Also your uh, performance apparel, so your base layer apparel and a lot of your performance wool clothing is going to be done on a worsted style of production to create those smoother yarns and those finer yarns. After we get all those fibers parallel, if we do what we call a semi-worsted yarn, we're going to make those fibers parallel and run it over to the suspending frame. At that point, we're still going to have a little flex of vegetation um, and little nets and pills. Nets and pills, when we see those on a product or even our clothes, a lot of people will think of a sweater they have and the sweater will start to pill. Usually it's the, the tips of those fibers are starting to, to peel up on the garment and those little tips form a little pill. In the production line, we form those as well. So oftentimes the outer coat of the, the fiber, so the tips of the wool fiber, they're exposed to the harsher weather conditions. So they're exposed to rain and snow and those outer tips are getting rubbed on the ground and they, they kind of weaken those tips, are a little bit weakened. So those tips will break off during production and create little nets in the yarn going through. Usually your finer wools create more nets than your coarser wools just because your coarser wools are a little stronger and they don't break as easily. So when we go to a semi-worsted yarn to the spinning frame, it's still going to have those little nets and little flecks of vegetation in there. And then we're going to spin it into yarn. And, and the spinning process is, is taking that web of fiber that's now been made parallel. So the fibers are now parallel in that web. And we're going to pull it apart to the thickness that we want. And then we twist it. And that twist is what's giving it strength. And so we twist it into a single ply on the spinning frame. And then we take that single ply and we can either keep it as a single or make it into a plied yarn. And so we could have two, three, four plies, which would be two or three or four strands of yarn that are twisted together on another machine. The more plies, the stronger it is. We've often heard of you know a four ply tire or a six ply tire for our cars. The same concept, the more plies, the stronger it's gonna be in the yarn. So we'll ply that yarn together. And then it goes over to uh, coning and skeining. Commercial knitter or weaver will often buy it on a cone. Hand knitter or weaver will often buy it on a skein. And also your, your custom dyers will buy it on skeins as well, usually. From there, we dye after we skein it. So there's some style of production where you can dye prior to spinning, or you can dye finished fabric. We dye the yarn after it's been spun. And that's what we do here. We call ourselves an artisan dye house. Trying to differentiate ourselves from a commercial dye facility. You have, you have some large commercial dye facilities in the U.S. that do really beautiful colors in really solid, consistent blues and greens and reds and all different shades, real solid, nice, crisp, clean colors. In an artisan dye process, we're gonna try and create variation. So we're gonna dye that fiber and we're gonna, based on a variety of techniques, create different um, tones. So lighter and darker shades all within that one skein of yarn. Let me kind of start to finish. Your finished yarn is done. From there, we can go to knitting and then we can knit it into our hats or sweaters or weaving and we'll go get it woven into a throw or a blanket in terms of our, our finished finishing operations. But that's kind of in a nutshell, the stages of production. If we do a fully combed yarn, so a fully worsted yarn, in the middle of gilling or pin drafting operation, we pull that fiber out, we run it through what's called a comb. The comb has a mechanical operation that goes and it, it separates out all the fibers that are less than an inch long. So all the fibers, so it's either vegetation or short nets, that were the broken fibers, anything less than a one inch long is mechanically removed 
and it creates that really smooth, crisp, clean look that you get in a finished yarn. And so we'll use that for a lot of our, our performance clothing um, and a lot of more our luxury yarn line will be more of a comb top look to it. And people often ask in the production line, you know, where does nylon or bamboo, viscose, hen cells, where are those added into the production line? Well, silk be another one. And usually in gilling, you can add it in in a lot of different stages. So we'd actually ply it in, we could blend it in during gilling, or we could blend it in prior to carding. So those other, other fibers are often blended in at various stages. But that's kind of the start to finish, a, a short summary of, of how it goes through a mill. Thank you so much. There are so many steps, and I really appreciate you narrating all those nuances for us. Do you work with sure. many fibers besides wool? You mentioned a couple uh, that can come in at the blending phase. Do you work with any other natural fibers like alpaca, or can you does cotton work well on your equipment, or is that a different process? Good question. We do a lot of different types of wool, so that's a, a good thing to answer first. Is there's about a hundred breeds or more of of wool breeds, sheep breeds in the U.S. So each fiber is going to be very distinct and very different in production. You're going to have your English lawn wools, really lawn staples, so they might be six to eight inches long. And lawn wavy locks, as opposed to your dense crimp and your finer um, merino genetics. So whether it's a Rambouillet, it's a Targhee, a Cormo, you're a lot of you have a different crimp structure in those finer wool breeds. On all those different wool breeds, we'll do a lot of them. I haven't processed every wool breed, so every year there's a, a new breed that comes in that we'll process, um, which is pretty fun. And then we'll also do a lot of other natural fibers. So we'll do alpaca, we'll do bison, we'll do yak. We'll do llama. We've done some experimentation with agave fiber, so just a plant-based fiber, um, doing some some custom production with agave, as well as other just various fibers. We do research for some facilities that we'll do, we'll do custom fibers we'll be run through in, in a research prototyping stage, um, whether it's a, a man-made fiber or other natural fibers that we'll run through on a, on a test basis. So a lot of different fiber types go through here. We don't do 100% alpaca. We usually have to blend it in with a fine wool for that crimp structure. And it's more of a production issue than a finished product issue. In our production line, there's a lot of tension put on that fiber. And we need that fine wool to provide structure and strength during production. So there are some processes that can do 100% alpaca. Ours, we can't, or we could modify to do it, but it's just our, we don't do enough alpaca to warrant modifying the equipment. Um, but we will do that alpaca in a, and usually a 50-50 blend the alpaca in there. Other natural fibers, such as cotton, we haven't done a lot of cotton here in-house. The cotton fibers are shorter. So in our production line, in, in a worsted style, we need three-inch long fibers or longer. And once we get below three inches, we start to have these performance issues in production with those shorter fibers. And so cotton being a short fiber as it is, if it's blended at too high of a percent, we'll get a lot of quality control issues. But blending, you know, 10% or 15% of those shorter fibers um, is possible on a, on a smaller scale. We also will process mohair, so goat fiber. We'll do angora rabbit. It's really kind of a fun. And, and a regional scale or even your mini mills. So, you know, we're a regional facility, but there's about 40 to 50 mini mills in the country. And those mini mills really excel at those really small, unique fibers as well. Taking something really custom, you know, someone has a couple of Angora rabbits and they want spun into a couple of skeins of yarn. And so really fun to take those unique fiber types and blend them to something really creative and create that unique product. Right. You talked about these three different scales of milling. And I know from when I was working on the Fiber Shed National Mill Inventory Research Project, that also became really apparent as this kind of trend, these three scales, but there's still a lot of differentiation amongst those different scales. When you talk about the mini mills and the regional mills and the commercial mills, are you creating those 
definitions and categories by volume or by machinery? Or um, I'm curious if, from your point of view, if the capabilities and the offerings differ at those different mills. It's a little of both of machinery and volume, but volume's the, the dictator of that. So your, your large commercial operations, you just have more machinery. And usually it's the scale, the style of machinery is pretty similar across the three ranges, some, some distinct differences. But volume on, on the large scale, again, you know, like uh, you take charge airs, wool scouring in South Carolina, you know, you're looking at 20 to 40,000 pounds of wool per shift. And, that, and that's what we're going to do in a year. So we're, we're going to be in that 30 to 50,000 pounds of wool a year is what we're going to produce of raw wool going through our production line. And then a lot of your smaller facilities, what I would call like a mini mill production would be, oh, you know, a thousand to even up to maybe 20,000 or, or, you know, but 10,000 pounds of raw wool a year would be a lot of your smaller facilities. And, and across that gamut, then you've got a lot of variation. So in your your small, your mini mills, you've got a different style of equipment that's often produced. A couple of manufacturers of small processing equipment. In a large facility, it would be considered a sampling line or a prototype line for, or a research and development line. But at these really small facilities, they're the, they're the main production line. A lot of quality control can be done, a lot of hands-on work. Great for really looking at that fiber on a small, close scale. E- each of these three industries, the large commercial, the regional, and then the small facilities, the mini mills, they all have a very distinct role in the industry. And I think they're all needed. Um, I think to discount one as opposed to the others would be doing a disservice to the industry as a whole. Take, for example, large commercial production. Without your large facilities, our military wool clothing wouldn't be possible. Your large performance sock industry wouldn't be possible. So if you look at the impact that those large facilities have on the grand total of sheep operations in the U.S., so your large facilities, they're consuming a lot of wool at those large facilities, a lot of U.S. wool, and it's keeping those ranchers in business by finding a, a local a United States source for using their, their raw wool. At a regional mill, we're great for custom development on a small commercial basis. So say uh, a company comes in and they want to do a new line of performance clothing. They're a, a new outdoor company and they want a unique story attached to that. So we can trace that fiber through the production line and give them a very unique finished product from a specific ranch um, that has that direct traceable connection to it. And it gives something that's, that's pretty niche and pretty unique to that company. Uh, your really small facilities that's where the, kind of the bread and butter is your, your hobby farmer who's got 10 sheep or even, you know, 100 sheep, and they want something very unique with their fiber. They want it done locally, and they want to go and they want to sell it online on an Etsy account, or they want to go sell it at a farmer's market, or they want to make gifts for their friends or, or do crafts with it. Um, and and they, these small facilities really excel at providing a very direct connection to that producer and the consumer at a real small scale. So they all have a, a very uh, important role in the industry. Absolutely. And it also, from my research and from things we've heard from our community, these different scales meet these different kind of customer bases and also provide different price points. And I know from, from Mountain Meadows' perspective, you also have a pricing structure based on volume. Why are there lower prices for these when you run a higher volume? Yeah, good question. If someone sends in a single fleece, so they've got one sheep and maybe they're a 4-H project. So they're in 4-H and they have a sheep and they share that fleece prior to going to fair um, and they want that processed. We are very expensive to process one fleece. Our production line is geared more towards 
a hundred pounds of raw wool up to you know eight thousand ten thousand pounds of raw wool that would be kind of where we fit into the production scale when i have to do a smaller lot so if i have to do 10 pounds or 20 pounds of fiber throughout production we want to guarantee traceability and so i've got to clean all the machinery uh, the whole wash line in particular out between each ranch that goes through there or each fiber type and that just slows down production the volume is, is substantially reduced to give you an idea of scale on uh on one large lot, so say someone brings in a full bale of wool, you know, 400, 500 pounds, we can wash that in about five hours, about 500 pounds. We can do about 100 pounds an hour with one large ranch. If we're doing someone who sends in 10 pounds or 20 pounds, it might take an hour to wash that 10 pounds of wool because we've got to go wash it through and then clean out the line and go into the next lot. So it just, it just slows down production quite a bit. And so at our end, if we can start doing those larger volumes of, you know, 200 pounds, 500 pounds, 1,000 pounds, suddenly our efficiencies in production, we can set up the machinery, we can get it run through there. Your setup time, your cleanup time, that's where you save a lot of money on your larger, larger production runs. So if I have 10 pounds of fiber versus 500 pounds of fiber, oftentimes the setup time is the exact same for both those two production runs. And so you can imagine that setup time being, say it was $100, $100 on 10 pounds versus $100 on 500 pounds is uh, the big difference there in terms of the cost per pound for production. Smaller facilities, so you look at a lot of the mini mill structures where you've got one, maybe two people, and sometimes I mean up to four people would be common in a mini mill, uh, but a lot of them are running with one, two people, just a handful of people running their operation. And at that scale, they're developed, they're designed for those small production runs, so 10 pounds and 20 pounds. And you can have you can be pretty efficient at 10 pounds if your whole system's designed for it. And so that's where designing the mechanics, the, ma the machinery to the volumes that are targeted is pretty critical in the industry. Take a, a thousand pound order to a mini mill that does regularly, you know, 20 pounds or 40 pounds per lot. You're probably not going to get a lot of efficiency improvement with a thousand pounds as you would to that that fit 20 pound lot going through production. And so that's where it may not actually cost them less if they do a really large volume of order. So it's kind of a the whole scale there. Take the large commercial industry, for example. Oh, look at like Chargers wool scouring. I don't remember the exact number of employees they've got, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 50 employees, I think, if I recall correctly. But they're doing, you know, several millions of pounds of wool a year for their facility. We've got right now about 17 employees at the at Mount Meadow Wool, and a lot of them are part-time, but 17 total. And we're doing a fraction of the volume that they do at Chargers in a year. So we're just a lot more hands-on, uh, a lot more labor hours, manpower hours per pound process than you would at a large volume facility. And that's why at a large scale, they need volume because they're competing on an international basis. So they're going to compete with China, Pakistan, India on a, a large commercial textile industry. And they need to be able to produce as many pounds as possible with as few labor hours as possible because the labor issue is one of the big differences between us and, and other countries. And so at the large commercial industry, compete internationally, they need to do large, large volume. At a regional mill, we don't do a lot of international competition. We're a pretty niche market. And so we can, we can develop a product with a lot more labor hours than you can in a large commercial facility. Right. So from what you've been describing, there's kind of this matchmaking process across scales to get you know, the farmer who's got the right amount of wool or the the brand who's looking to make a certain production scale to mash with the right facility and vice versa so that those facilities are supported to kind of do their best and most efficient work. I'm curious uh, at Mountain Meadow Wool, how much of your work involves 
direct farmer orders versus maybe aggregating different blends and supplying a brand. What does that breakdown look like? Yeah, we do. It kind of varies from year to year, but as a general rule of thumb, we do about 25% of our production is going to be farmers or ranchers who have their own fiber and they want to trace that to the process and get their fiber back and they're going to go sell it. So they're going to go sell it online or go sell it at a farmer's market. A very rewarding, very fun part of our business. I'm in charge personally of of most of those orders and just a a fun process. So a rancher will call in, they say, hey, you know, I've been producing this wool for 20, 30 years and I'd like to make something with it. Can you help me? And so we'll talk to the, usually they don't know anything about textile processing. So there's a lot of conversations that take place with that rancher and walking through what what are they hoping to accomplish with that production run are they wanting gifts are they wanting to sell it and they usually are asking for advice what do we think would be a good product to make with their fiber type based on their fiber properties um, that they produce if they're doing a gift or they're trying to resell it what kind of volumes do they need so there's a lot of back and forth working with that producer about 25 percent of our production is going to be larger volume for private label work We'll do custom production for other yarn companies who want a very specific product with a, usually a specific breed. So they want to try a new yarn with, say, Rambouillet wool or Cormo wool or Targi wool. And we'll create a very specific yarn for them to put their label on. They might, they'll usually do the dyeing. Um, we usually will just give them the, the natural base. Um, that's about 25% of our work. The other 50% would be our internal production. It's that before the yarns we make for selling to wholesale yarn stores, selling online yarn, and also our finished products, so sweaters and hats and mittens and gloves. That's kind of the, the, the differentiation that we have internally. It's kind of a nice fit for us, those four different areas. Well, I guess kind of three main areas, the internal production and then the two external productions. Thank you. So you work with a lot of the knitting industry and, and the kind of making movement. Do you see a growing interest in that area in these kind of traceabilities or the stories that you're able to tell around your process. Yeah, I think, you know, as a general industry or, you know, as a, as a U.S. as a whole, people are wanting to know more where their food comes from. People are wanting to know more where their fiber comes from. We've all heard stories of, of discouraging news from overseas of poor labor practices and, uh, you know, the sweat houses where people are just, you know, children are being put into work to provide these garments we're wearing. And, and I think there's a, a general need or a want in the United States for us to find more sustainable ways of doing textile production, ones that treat the employees better, provide more of an income source, a long-term sustainable income source for those ranchers who are raising that fiber, and really just taking good care on the whole supply chain, working, uh, making sure we don't pollute the environment. Um, where are those dyes going to? Are we just discharging that byproducts to the environment and damaging our environment for the long term. And so there's a, there's a growing need in the U.S., a growing want, a desire to find traceable fiber with good sustainable practices. And so a lot of your textile industry, I think, is going to that as well. Some major hurdles to that, though. So there's this desire um, nationally, you know, even globally, for large textile companies to have this nice sustainable supply chain where you're really taking a close look at every aspect of that, of that supply. The challenge is we've, we've shifted to a large bulk production textile industry. And so the cost point goes up substantially the more time and care you take in that supply chain. And so you're looking at, say, you know, you've got a, a cotton t-shirt that costs $5. If you, you know, you see that in a store and it's like, how can we possibly as a global society produce a cotton t-shirt for $5. It's incredible. You know, you, you think of the rancher raising the cotton, 
or the farmer processing of that cotton fiber or the manufacturing of it into a textile and it only costs $5 is pretty incredible. We've gotten used to that as a consumer, We've gotten used to pretty cheap textiles. When I work with brands who are wanting something unique and something niche, a lot of excitement's being built. So I would say out of 10 that call in, only one will pursue that project into a finished product. And usually it's based on cost. The idea, the want, the desire there to produce that sustainable line of clothing or a new product. But once you start going through the cost points of that, of how you develop this traceable product, you know, in, in our model of operation, and there's a lot of different models, but we pay the ranchers a premium for their wool, a pretty substantial premium. And we never lower that premium. We don't pay our, our raw wool prices based on the international markets. So we have a baseline price. And when the markets drop out, we keep paying that same baseline to that rancher. And I tell the ranchers, I never lower my yarn price when the, the commodity price or wool drops out. So why do I lower the price I pay the rancher? It's just kind of a, it's just, it's a thing we can do at a small scale. That's a nice benefit. But if you're looking at a textile industry who wants to do a new, new apparel line and they're trying to compete with those really cheap products on the market, that premium to that rancher, the premium for traceable production, the premium for sustainable production, all those costs add up. And I would say, you know, nine out of 10 clients who call in don't pursue the product just because the cost point, they don't think they can get into that market and, and develop that as a market. Unfortunate. And I think it's going to change over time. And it, markets are shifting, but that's kind of a reality that I've experienced in the past uh, years of doing that. So there's this desire for traceability and transparency that is, as you're describing, very present on all sides, but especially, I think, increasingly on the fashion side. And then there are these very real hurdles um, when brands try to reach kind of, I, I think of it as sort of further back into their supply chain to get to know the farmer, to really understand the the mills and the processors that they work with. And I know that you recently went to a trade show, the Tex World Trade Show in New York. And that seems a bit unique to me to have a, a wool mill and a fiber processing mill present there and not just the finished fabric manufacturers. Can you share a little bit more about what that experience was like? Sure, it was, it was pretty fun. It was the first of that show type that I had been to. I can't remember the exact numbers, but roughly out of, of 500 or so companies that attended, Less than two dozen were from the United States, which was that was a very interesting eye opener for me is to see how few textile operations or products were are available on on the, on the market today. Uh, with the uh, a couple of uh, the companies I talked to that were there, one was a zipper manufacturer, and they've been going to the show for for decades. And they said 20 years ago it was flipped. Most of the companies at that show would have been U.S. companies, and a smaller percentage would have been overseas production. So we, we, it's an interesting point in the industry. Being there as a processor was pretty fun. We're not going to be providing bulk fabric for a large production run for oh, one of your international textile apparel companies. But we have a lot of designers who we talk to. They want something pretty unique, pretty custom on a small scale and looking for small batch production. And, and it was very fun for us to talk to those facilities are those designers who have an idea. And it's just a rewarding part of my job is to talk to someone with an idea and be able to take that idea into a reality and create that product for them. And so talking to a designer, they've got an idea in their head of a new sweater they want to make or a new um, accessory they want to make from the apparel line and be able to say, okay, let's, let's go all the way back to the raw fiber. And that's an eye opener to those designers. Usually they think of, well, do I want to make it with wool? Do I want to make it with cotton? And when I can talk to them and say, well, let's look at wool. What breed of wool? And like, oh, breed of wool? Is there differences? 
And then you start walking through the different properties of different fibers. And, you know, like, like right now, the Livestock Conservancy is doing a, a push on um, shear them to save them to try and a lot of these, these conservation breeds. Of, let, let's use that fiber. And some of them have very cool properties of those unique breeds. And to be able to talk to a designer and say, well, there's this breed and this might have this unique property and we can make this type of product with it. It's an eye opener for them to say, wow, I can trace it all the way back to this ranch. It's just pretty fun and rewarding. We have our, our knitting operation tentatively scheduled to be operational by March. And that will allow us to take those really small batches and a designer who wants 10 pieces of a new product line and they want uniquely created with a, a unique breed of wool, a unique yarn construction, and then a unique, a unique knitted construction and be able to bring that to the market for them. And so that, that's our, our goal there is to be able to fill this, this growing, I think, and growing want or desire in the industry for these small textile designers to have a niche product. I'm curious, actually, going back to what you were describing with the TexWorld trade show and the flip uh, that the zipper manufacturer described in the last 20 years from perhaps a dominant made in the USA, made in America presence to a rarity of those manufacturers. And, you know, recently we've just heard about the closing of Woolrich Mill and Cone Denim on the, the fabric manufacturing side that closed last year. So there's this sense of the dynamics of the milling industry and how vulnerable it, it can feel what do you think could help stabilize milling? Is that even possible? Yeah, it's a difficult question. One I probably can't even answer. Um, the Woolrich one is, is an interesting model for me to look at. I, I see a growing demand in people wanting made in America, people wanting that traceable source, U.S. made products. And it, it seems the closing of Woolrich is untimely in that regard. It seems like there's a growing market demand for what they could produce or would have been able to produce. But then it goes into a lot of the internal unknowns that I, I don't know the internals of, of why the decision was necessarily made. You know, there, you know there's a lot, a lot of different factors would go into a company wanting to shut down their operation. I hope that the textiles in the U.S. can be sustainable long term. I really do. A lot of it's going to be education of the consumer. The more education that is done, say, you know, this is where your, your product, your clothing comes from, especially in comparison to, you know, maybe an overseas practice that, you know, you take some of your, your rivers in China that are completely polluted with dye pollutants from the dye processes. You look historically, you've gone through textile processing moves globally across the world based on regulation. So once a country starts regulating the textiles a little bit more stringently to try to you know, preserve the environment, help labor practices, oftentimes that textile industry then moves away and goes to another country where there's less like regulation. And so you look at that from a global economy scale, and until we change that, there's always going to be the opportunity for a really cheap product on the market. But I think educating U.S. consumers about where it's coming from, the damage that these, these practices are, are causing on the global economy for long term, for, you know, in 100 years from now, what's it doing to our water sources or our, our land resources 100 years from now? I think a lot of that education is why people are wanting that traceable supply chain um, they want to know where the fiber comes from because they, they want those good sustainable practices to be implemented. And I think that education, as that grows, that'll make these companies and these supply chains in the U.S. that are, are trying to do that um, more sustainable in the long term. But you, you, know, you never really know, like, you know, 10 years from now, uh, what the economy is going to look like. Or uh, There's a lot of those unknowns and it, it's hard to say, but I, I think the, the educating the consumers on that story, on that supply chain, will be a big part of preserving textiles. Absolutely. And that's certainly something we've seen so much 
positivity around with the idea of a fiber shed and of getting to know where your fiber comes from and getting to know the people who process your fiber and and even you know the reality of the challenges that those people face and uh, you know in spite of these different challenges and, and kind of broader dynamics it also seems like there's a lot of exciting innovation happening in natural fiber processing and in u.s manufacturing so you've described some things like you know these unique breeds and different breed specific processing research that you're doing. And you're also talking about um, the knitting expansion, which I think is uh, a way of creating vertical integration in a way. Um, can you share some, some of these ways that you're working to bridge the kind of old style heritage milling and uh, a modern milling vision? It's an interesting dilemma we have in the US on textile knowledge. Very few universities still have wool processing capability. Actually, there's currently no four-year university in the country that has a wool processing line that's operational. It's an extreme disadvantage we have as we develop new products and do new innovations is we don't have anywhere to experiment and do those developments at. Your mini mills throughout the country are a great source for that, to do unique things on a small scale. We like to position Mount Meadow Wool as a, as a regional facility to be able to do that as well, to be able to do research um, of these unique breeds, these unique, unique fiber properties. And the knitting operation we're bringing on is, in a way, allowing us to do that. So say we have a, uh, so let's pick Lincoln Wool. Lincoln's one of your English lawn wools, lawn wavy locks. It's got a lot of luster to it, so a really shiny fiber. It's very coarse, so it's, it's going to be more of an outer garment or, you know, a table runner, or there's a lot of other, you know, home goods where you want to use that, that high luster for shine. But there's not a lot of research done in terms of what are suitable finished products for it. The research that's done or the information that's out there is usually on a small scale. Usually it's on your, your hand spinners. So you're, you have a large industry in the U.S. Of, of hand spinners who have used a variety of breeds, a variety of different textiles or raw fibers or hand spinning yarns. And that's where a lot of that knowledge resides is in they, they know the handle, the feel. They, they've experimented with different finished products that those unique fiber properties or fiber types can go into. And so we try and pull from a lot of that, that hand-spinning knowledge into the commercial milling operation side of it. But it, so it's kind of a, a weird blend of using these unique fiber properties that are generally on a commercial scale considered a contaminant. And, and taking that contaminant fiber and utilizing it for what, what unique properties are, are, are useful for. Um, even like your, your fine wools. So you take Cormo, Targi, and Rambouillet, uh, three nice fine wool breeds, um, or and throw your, your true Spanish Merinos in there as well. Each of those four breeds is gonna have very unique properties. Some are gonna be longer and straighter. Some are gonna be shorter with more crimp to them. Um, and you can create loftier yarns or straighter yarns or smoother yarns, very unique finished products with each of those different fiber types. I think that's where an opportunity in the industry today is to capitalize upon those unique fiber properties to create very unique products based on the breed being used. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. If folks are wanting to learn more about and kind of follow along with these initiatives you're describing and learning more about these fiber breeds, where can they find you online and how can they follow Mountain Meadow Wool? Sure, you can go online, uh, mountainmeadowwool.com or on our Facebook, not my wall on Facebook. Um, we also do have an Instagram account. We don't use real regularity. It's, it's a funny, it's a challenge for us as a mill. You know, we are heavily involved in the production of the product. Um, and so the start to finish, um, the milling operation, the machinery, quality, the performance. And then, uh, you know, social media online, sharing that story. It's just a fun challenge for us as a regional mill. 
to, at the same time we expand our, our production, to also expand our outreach of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so we have some ideas in, in place to do some more blogging and, and explain the story a little bit more. Um, so hopefully uh, check us out on, on our website or on Facebook and hear about those as we, we bring them forward. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to chat with you and I really appreciate everything you shared. Yeah, yeah thanks Jess, thanks for having me on. Love is back in a trailer Turn one way and it goes the other Love. Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California. You can learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. And there you can find show notes, you can sign up for our newsletter to hear the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media by searching for Fibershed on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find Mountain Meadow Wool Mill online at mountainmeadowwool.com. And you can also get to know mills close to home and across the country by visiting nationalmillinventory.com. As you've just heard, the textile industry faces many challenges, from closures to bottlenecks. Yet it's more important than ever to do our part to support this revival. We actually released a webinar recently through Fibershed that walks through the National Mill Inventory and touches on some of the research findings and kind of the picture that's painted when we look at uh, a map or a visualization of fiber processing across the U.S. So check that out on fibershed.org on the National Mill Inventory page. When we look at these resources, we know that if you're a farmer or a farmyard creator, many small and regional scale mills are available across the U.S. that can process fleece into hand knitting yarns, which is a really beautiful way to connect directly with farms and understand the links between landscape and clothing. For weaving yarns or for fine gauge knitting machine yarns, the manufacturing options are fewer and the minimums get higher. In the upcoming episodes, we're going to move further into the conversation on building regional economies with cloth production and cut and sew designers in mind. We hope you'll stay tuned and join us. You can also email us feedback or questions to podcast at fibershed.com. This show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, who is a member of our Northern California Fibershed community. Love it.